0: Welcome to the Highland Ministry Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this week's teaching from Highland Baptist Church in Molino, Florida. Today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Brian Nall to the pulpit to bring the message through the cross, a moment-by-moment account. Dr. Nall serves as director of the Pensacola Bay Baptist Association. Now tune your heart to the Lord as we hear from Dr. Nall. Matthew 26, verse 26 and following. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, "Drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. With these words, Jesus once again turned the religious order on its head. The unleavened bread had been a symbol of sincerity and truth for all the Jewish people. But now in Jesus, the Old Testament symbol had become a New Testament person that was about to be broken for you and for me. Following that, the drink reminded the people that a perfect animal sacrifice was required so that people might be forgiven. And now, it is lived out in a perfect life, the person of Jesus Christ, whose shed blood was about to really pave the way for man to reconnect with their creator, God. After this last supper, which I understand you commemorated and celebrated last week, the apostles and Jesus, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. However, I want you to put your mind and what would have taken place between that Thursday evening and then that Sunday morning. We joined Jesus on the journey to the cross about 1 a.m. in a vineyard outside of Jerusalem called Gethsemane. Jesus was concluding an agonizing prayer to his father when he looks up to see Judas, the third-year apostle and chairman of the finance committee, approaching with a large mob of people, including soldiers, bearing torches and swords and weapons. Some scholars have estimated this group was around 400. Judas identifies Jesus to the mob with a customary kiss of a greeting. Jesus immediately, he takes charge of the situation and asks the mob who they're looking for, of which they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds, I am he. And at this point, John 18, 6 tells us that the group actually drew back and fell to the ground. I would not want to be the arresting officer at that moment after you have to get up from the ground to arrest the person. But after recovering, the guards then reach to arrest Jesus. Then suddenly, Peter grabs a nearby sword and actually moves, probably to cut off the head of Malchus, the high priest's servant. But wisely, Malchus ducks, only for his ear to be cut off. Jesus, continuing to be that compassionate God, Compassionate figure, in the midst of great difficulty, reaches down, picks up the ear, and heals Malchus, putting the ear back onto his head. After the healing, Jesus is finally arrested, and all the disciples flee, including a young man named Mark, who at the end, in Mark 14, tells us that he ran away from the scene naked. We don't think of that scene too often. In the night hours of Friday morning, Jesus enters into what is two trials that he would go through over the next few hours. The first trial was a religious or a Jewish trial. See, upon leaving Gethsemane, Jesus was taken before Annas, the former high priest, the former head of the religious sect known as the Sadducees. Annas was the -the behind-the-scenes influencer of the day in order to have the political sway and the religious sway all together in the religious community. In this midnight conversation, charges were discussed and then made up. This lingered until Caiaphas, the current high priest, the current influencer of the day, and by the way, Annas' son-in-law. Till he could get together with just a few more of the Pharisees for charges to be added. These two nighttime discussions that Jesus went through bought them time until the entire Sanhedrin, that Israel's supreme court of 72 religious individuals, could come together at daylight in order to confirm the charge that had already been assembled that previous night. And it is during... This trial that Jesus was blindfolded. He was spit on. He was hit. And it was continuously shouted out prophesy, prophesy, who hit you? In mockery form. And at the end of this illegal, blasphemous religious trial, Jesus was charged with claiming to be the Son of God. That was the trial's verdict, blasphemy. Now the Jews, they wanted Jesus dead. However, in this day, Israel was under the control of the Roman government. And the Jews, they had a problem because the Jewish people could not execute anyone without Roman approval. You remember Annas, the Retired previous high priest. Well, he accidentally, well, maybe not accidentally, intentionally did that earlier. And it cost him the high priest role that he had occupied for 16 years. So he knew he didn't want to do that again. So this completely illegal trial, according to the Jewish legal system, the Jewish leaders had another problem. See, under Jewish law, They wanted blasphemy charged. But under Roman law, it was not a crime to claim to be the Son of God. They just thought the guy was just a little bit crazy, whoever might be charged with such an offense. And so the trial began to shift in the middle of the night from a religious trial to a Roman trial. Besides the trial shift, the charge shifted. In the middle of the night as well. According to Jewish policy, there was to be a 24-hour waiting period between a charge and the execution. At least the decision that lead to the execution. Well, this waiting period for a crime of the death penalty was required. However, the leaders overlooked the policy. They ignored the policy. And somewhere between 5 and 7 a.m., these religious leaders, who had once said it was blasphemy, changed the charge, and they brought Jesus for Pilate, the current Rome-appointed governor of the day. Pilate, interviewing Jesus, found no fault in him, since especially only claimed to be God. However, he found in the conversation that Jesus was from Galilee, and he knew that Herod, The local Jewish leader was in town for the events of the day, the Passover. Kicked him out down the road to Herod, who had a conversation with Jesus. Herod just mocked him, made fun of him, spit on him, asked him to do magic tricks. Well, didn't really find any fault with him. Just said, I'm going to send you on back to Pilate, of which he did. But at this point, as it came back, the formal charge changed. No longer claiming to be the Son of God, the charge was now claiming to be a king. Oh, that was a whole other story altogether. Because in the crime in Rome, that was perceived as an attempt to take over Caesar. However, when Pilate heard Jesus explain that his kingdom was from another world, John 18 tells us that he saw no threat at all in Jesus. So in line with the Passover custom, a choice was given to the people. Who shall we let go? Is it going to be Yeshua from Nazareth, or is it going to be Barabbas, a notorious murderer and criminal of the day? The people decided Barabbas. Yet in one last-ditch effort, Pilate said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have this Jesus guy who now has a charge of claiming to be a king. We're going to have him scourged and then we're going to let him go. So around 7 a.m., Jesus would have entered the inner court of Pilate into what was known as the praetorium, the inner sanctum of the guards, where the soldiers would have removed part of his clothing. And in that day... Archaeologists were able to confirm that either there was a a post in the middle of the praetorium or up above the archway of a door, Jesus would have been attached. And at this point, the Roman soldiers would have carried out what was known as the half-death, the scourge. There were two parts of the scourge that Jesus would have endured. The first is known as the Fustigatio. The Fustigatio was carried out by usually by one soldier with a large reed, thirty-nine lashes administered upon the back of the individual. Large welts would have arisen on Jesus' body during this phase. After the fustigatio was completed, now was the second portion of the scourge, the half-death, known as the verberatio. The cat of nine tails, a whip with bone, metal, all woven in. The lashes that were administered upon any individual during the verberatio was not random, but rather systematic over each shoulder, on either side of the back, on either leg, repeated and repeated. How often, you say, until the person was dead, until the soldier got tired, or till the officer in charge said, okay, that's enough. No other count was administered for the verberatio. At this point, deep bruises would have occurred during the verberatio. Then whelps, then ripping the flesh, and ultimately what happened, it ultimately and often exposed internal organs of whoever was The victim, a recipient of the verberatio. With each lash, Jesus moved closer and closer to death. But you and I moved closer and closer to a hope of heaven. This process, again, it lasted a long time. After the scourge, the guards came in mockery form and took a robe, put it on Jesus, Binding the fabric of that robe to his gruesome body. You've had a sore or something before after you get scraped, and all of a sudden a piece of cloth kind of gets stuck to that piece of your clothing. As in all that had Jesus had experienced is now upon him. The soldiers then crafted a crown of Thorns. And this region of the world, the kindling that would have been used, these thorns are actually eight to nine inches in length, doubled as kindling wood in this region of the world. They shoved them onto the skull of Christ. Then they took a rod and they hit him in the head, driving those thorns even deeper. This was repeated along with spitting in his face and mockery and blindsided punches. They brought Jesus back to Pilate, and hoping to find satisfaction. Pilate hoped it was all done too, but instead the angry mob just shouted, crucify him. And So he wanted to wash his hands of Jesus, and Pilate, he extended the order for Jesus to be crucified. Jesus then began his final walk to the cross. This way to the cross happened around 8 to 8.30 in the morning. Jesus began down the road the path that was known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the way of sorrows. This path through the Jerusalem was about 600 meters or 2,000 feet in length. People lined the streets on either side of the Via Dolorosa, hurling insults and spit and gave more abuse. A person was required to carry the cross at down the Via Dolorosa. However, archaeologists and historians are able to confirm that the criminal did not carry the entire cross, but only the cross, as known as the patabulum, which actually weighs up to 110 pounds. It's been found. It is no wonder while Jesus, with so much blood, having been lost in the half-death scourge, stumbled repeatedly Having not eaten in a while, he stumbled to the ground because he could not carry it himself. But under order was now forced a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. The Via Dolorosa brought Jesus to Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull. Once Jesus and the guards reached Golgotha, they stripped Jesus, threw him onto the Patabulum. Then there's the crucifixion. Friends, Jesus' flogged body would have been stretched out upon the cross beam, that patabulum. At 9 a.m., the same time that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed throughout the entire region, each arm of Jesus was placed slightly above and out beyond flexion, beyond the resting point of the chest muscles allowing just a small measure of flexion to be able to be achieved at this point a nail was driven between the radius and the ulna muscles and the bones in the wrist through the median nerve nailing the through the palm of the hand it would have actually tore off under the weight of the victim and then the opposing arm would be stretched in like manner, out, up, and just beyond resting point. After both hands and arms were affixed to the patibulum, Jesus would have been hoisted through ropes and pulleys into the air and dropped into a notch at the top of the center stake known as the stipe. And so if you imagine a permanently fixed up and down, concreted in, stipe up and down, hoisted into the notch in the air and dropped the bullum into the stipe. He would hang there for the next six hours. At this point, the weight of Jesus Christ rested upon his wrist. And then the final phase. At just the perfect height, they attach the feet of the individual. Now, archaeologists have found crucified individuals whose feet have been pierced in three different ways. One pulled up back behind them. Two with their feet actually pointed out with the stake going into the heels. And then the other on top of each other going through the top of the feet. All three have been discovered archaeologically. And as recorded in all four Gospels, the guards then hung the charge above Jesus' head. The Titleist is what it was known as. You've seen in movies or in pictures before, I-N-R-I, often above the head of Jesus. Yesus Nazorum Rexiriorum, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This Titleist would have been actually repeated in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew minute by minute, hour upon hour, Jesus now had to choose, choose between breathing or hanging. If he chose to hang, all of his weight would rest upon his wrist and the pain that of the nails going through the median would race through his hands and arms and explode in his brain. However, asphyxiation, suffocation, would begin to come because the extent at which Jesus was extended, his pectoral muscles would begin to cramp and the intercostal muscles of his body would begin to paralyze. If he chose then to breathe, to push up with his feet, with the nails in his feet, he would do two parts. One, as he pushed, all the weight would go from his wrist to his feet, and then he would have to rotate his hands across his wrist that were pierced and his flogged body across the cross. At that point, by pushing up, his overextended pectoral muscles could have just a slight bit of relaxation in order to gain a breath. And from that process of up and down for six hours, when he wanted to speak, it's when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He did it again when he said he was thirsty. He did it again when he assured another victim that he would join Jesus in paradise. He did it again when he looked to John to say, take care of my mother. He did it again when he cried out to the Father, My God, why have you forsaken me? He did it again. He declared it was finished. After all this, and he had died, a Roman guard came and took a spear and shoved it into a side where Scripture says, and blood and water flowed, which gives medical evidence that it actually went into his pericardium and under extreme duress, water fills the sac around the pericardium, giving medical evidence that Jesus died of heart failure, from carbon monoxide, and hypothermia. But what did it fully mean when Jesus said it is finished? His physical life had ended. We've just covered in a biblical, historical medical account of what Jesus went through. But there's another. See, Jesus at the same time, he fully received the guilt and pain of bearing all the sin from God the Father. See, we humans know what anguish is like when we do something wrong. You feel bad. You're like, I can't believe I did that. You know that feeling. And as we grow in our walk with Christ, we seek to grow in holiness, that intense guilt can increase. But Jesus Christ had never experienced that feeling before because he had never sinned before. It was totally against his nature. He hated it with his entire being, and yet Jesus Christ took the guilt of sin of the world upon himself. Scripture says this Isaiah 53 The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of a soul. Isaiah 53, 12, He bore the sin of many. Hebrews 9, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Though Jesus had never sinned, God looked at the guilt of our sin and put it on Christ Jesus. That might seem unfair, but Jesus did this voluntarily. So there's the physical acts that Jesus went through. There's the mental, the the guilt that Jesus experienced of yours and mine that was due us. Number three, Jesus experienced abandonment. His closest friends because of the circumstance and his father because of the guilt of sin placed upon him. Though the physical pain of the cross was horrible and the mental pain of the guilt was terrible, it was amplified because Jesus had to endure it all alone. Mark 14, Matthew 26 tells us the moment when his disciples fled. Now, each of us had, have had to endure times in life where we think we've just walked through some rejection. Rejection. We have walked through rejection. Might be a family member. Might be a job. Might be some case. And In every case where we've been rejected, we often think, maybe I could have done something different. Maybe if I did this better or this better, I could have got the job. My relationship wouldn't have been fractured. There's always something. But Jesus didn't have that. He lived perfectly. He had nothing but love for the world, and the world abandoned him. However, far worse than the abandonment of the world was that of the Father. As the sky turned black, and Jesus cried out, Aloha, Aloha, alabasabakani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sweet fellowship that had been in there since the foundation of the world. And mystery and how all this works out is completely uncertain. But because God the Father in His perfect holiness cannot look upon sin, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 113, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, Jesus had to face the weight of the guilt of the world alone. And then there was the fourth. He had to endure the wrath of God. God the Father, the Lord of the universe, poured out his wrath, his hatred towards sin. Jesus became the object of intense hatred of sin that a good, just God has. That God had been patiently storing up since the beginning of time. Many of you know Romans 3, 23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you ever look two verses further here's what it says God presented him sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Since the days of Adam saying to people, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Even though there was a sacrificial program in place, it was never sufficient enough. And so what God kept doing is putting his justice, his hatred, his right hatred towards sin on a credit card, saying, you're forgiven. It's not quite enough. I'm going to put it on this card. And that kept getting stored up. And up and up. And he looked to us in the future. It's going to get stored up, stored up. But someday that card has to be poured out, paid off. And what happened here, Jesus became what scripture calls the propitiation, meaning the object that changes God's wrath into favor. On the cross, Jesus paid off that card, he paid off that wrath. The punishment for sin that all people since the beginning of time had deserved and that we deserve in eternal measure, Jesus satisfied. First John 2.2, 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. First John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So friends, know this, at the point... When Jesus' physical pain had reached its pinnacle. When the guilt of sin had reached its maximum. When the abandonment of the world and the Father had reached its deepest. And the very last drip of God's wrath had been poured out. And Jesus drank the last drip of God's wrath. He said, it is finished. He had completely drank the wrath of God. After six hours of agony and Jesus' final breath on the cross, a secret follower of Jesus came forward in order to claim his body. Joseph of Arimathea was an aristocrat in the day from northern Samaria, a member of the Sanhedrin, the same group that worked to actually condemn Jesus. Now, this secret follower came to claim his body. Assisted by Nicodemus another religious leader in the day, both risking being accused of associating with a criminal, both almost and possibly so being discounted from the religious festivals of this day because they would have touched a dead body, therefore rendering them unclean for the Jewish celebrations. They come and they take and claim Jesus' body. And this day, the burial process, they would have laid Jesus out and they would have actually wrapped him in foot wide Linen cloths beginning up with the armpits around his body in multiple layers. And between every layer, different ointments and different spices would have been wrapped into every single layer. Scripture tells us that several women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Clephas and others, they watched this burial. As you see pictures or news accounts on TV in Jerusalem today, you will actually see where it's referenced the church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the traditional place of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. There's the garden tomb around the others, so there's some other possibilities. But this was actually built in 335 A.D. to commemorate the spot where traditionally they believed Jesus was death, burial, and resurrection. He's placed in a tomb, but let me tell you just something about the tomb. It belonged to the Joseph of Arimathea, a brand new tomb. Never used, of course, not shared by anyone else. Inside the tomb was this slab that would have been built in. And in front of the tomb was a large, large rock, disc-shaped, known in this day of Jewish society as the Golail. The Golel would have been placed in a trench just outside the face of the cave, the face of the tomb, and it was rolled in place, and some Jewish historians claim that the size of these things easily took almost 20 men in order to move it. As the Golail was ultimately rolled into place with Jesus' body on the inside, another small stone, the dofeg, was used to wedge it to keep all parts of the place. Mary observed all these things and had the valid concern on that Sunday morning when she returned, who's going to help us roll the stone away? As they knew how many it took to put the Golail there in the first place. Matthew 27 tells us that a seal was placed in front of the tomb by the soldiers. It was placed there to secure a site so that vandals would not come because the religious leaders were already concerned hoax could come. The seal of the day was similar like, even you go back to Daniel and the lion's den, it would have been a cord that would have been stretched from one side of the golel to the other, one side of the opening of the tomb to the other, with the wax that was placed in, and the seal of Rome... Then impression pushed in. Stating that anybody who breaks the seal or moves the stone could be guilty all the way to death. Guard was placed there. A Roman guard was four soldiers tasked with guarding whatever was the contents behind the seal. In this case, Jesus of Nazareth. These guys would not go to sleep because if their superior officer saw them go to sleep, it would be death. Another reason to take caffeine before you go on guard duty. Then there was Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary set out for Jesus' tomb after the Passover on Sunday morning in order to bring additional spices and ointments for Jesus' body to complete the Jewish burial process. As they were traveling, the large earthquake shook the entire place. Matthew 28 tells us that an angel of the Lord came in radiant beauty and moved the Goliel, caused the guards to become like dead men, pass out. Two white men appeared, dressed in white, appeared next to them, inquired this, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Upon leaving the room, leaving the tomb, Jesus appeared and told Mary, Go and tell my disciples and Peter, who had denied him, that he's resurrected. They got back, told them, Peter and John ran, discovered firsthand the reality that the tomb was empty. And this set in motion numerous sightings and appearances of Jesus over the next 40 days. Jesus appeared to Mary in the garden. He appeared to Peter later that day, to the disciples walking to the town of Emmaus, to the apostles without Thomas, to the apostles with Thomas, to the seven at the lake of Tiberias, to over 500 people at one time on a mountainside, to James, to the 11, and at the ascension. All these appearances of a Jesus over the next 40 days. The astounding fact is all these witnesses and there's no contradiction. But there was attempt to be a cover-up. Matthew 28 says the Jewish leaders were able to find what was happening and they paid off the soldiers who had witnessed it. Matthew 28, 11 says that. It can't be said, as some claim, that Jesus just passed out. It's known as the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't resurrect, he just passed out, he came back. So let me ask you this, how could an individual who had gone half death, had not eaten in four days, get out of the burial cloths, remove a stone that took 20 minutes to put in place, defeat four guards, and come out and overcome it? It doesn't make sense. It can't be said that the disciples and Mary went to the wrong tomb, as some have said. You've lost loved ones before. Would you forget where your loved one was buried 72 hours later? Some have said it was the disciples. They did it, but that don't make sense because last time we saw them, they were running scared. They wouldn't stand up to the Roman soldiers. Rome didn't do it. Pilate didn't do it because he wanted the whole entire situation The Jewish leaders, they wouldn't have done it because when the revolution of Christianity broke out, they could have said, nah, here's his body. Plus, the apostle Paul, who he was Saul of Tarsus at the time, he was on the inside at the time. He'd have said, nope, I know the truth. We can't say that. It can't be said that these hundreds and hundreds of people all hallucinated because psychologists will tell you there's no such thing as mass hallucination by people in different places at different times all having the same conclusion. There's more known about the burial of Jesus Christ than any other person in recorded history. Supporters and opponents all agree that the tomb was empty. Not a historical dispute. But an empty tomb does not prove a resurrection grave would communicate one today. However, the message is that Jesus is alive as it is confirmed by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. Now you might be asking, Brian, why are you telling all the history and the defense and the archaeology and the medical stuff of Jesus? Here's why. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins would still be in a tomb and never conquered. Satan would have won. All of Christianity rests on this event that we're going to be celebrating the next couple of weeks. All of our eternity rests on this event. All of the church rests on this event. The message of the Bible rests on this event. The ministry of the life of Jesus Christ rests on this event. Heaven rests on this event. My life and your life rest on this event. So, the glorious fact is when you examine all the facts, when you read all the scripture and look at all the witnesses and consider all the possibilities, there's only one conclusion Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, rose from the grave. Therefore, sins can be forgiven. God's justice can be satisfied. His holiness can be preserved. We can be rescued from the grip of eternal death and hell. Be able to spend eternity in the heavenly arms of our Father. Our sins, they were paid for on Friday, but our eternity was secured on Sunday. Christ has the same attitude we do. He lived for the weekends. So we now clearly see the verse that we so often quote, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish as He did, but have everlasting life. This is something that you can't just say, okay, that's nice. So many people may be here, I know in this community, they would affirm everything I've taught You would say, I'm a fan of Jesus. But friends, knowing all these facts will not get a person into heaven. Spending time in here won't get a person into heaven. Much like spending time in a garage is not going to make you a car. You have to receive it personally. Let's say, I know what Jesus did, but I believe it, and I'm going to trust it. It comes when we put our faith in Him, and this morning, some of you need to do that. It's very similar because often what we can do, you can know all the facts of what Jesus did for you and for me and all this history that I've just unfolded. But until a person says, I'm actually going to rest my life in it, knowing all the facts and all the history doesn't do anything. So the question is, is there a point in your life when all that Christ has done for you Have you trusted in it? Have you put your life in Him? Oh, all too many people will say, "Thank you, Jesus, for what you did," but you've never trusted in Him. Friends, if that's you, the day you get up to heaven, you say, "Oh, I knew all the details." God's going to say, "I knew you." The demons believe the details; they just don't embrace it. Question is, have you embraced it? This morning, in a second, we're about to sing. Without Him, I can do nothing. About to stand, we're about to sing together. If you say, you know what, I've been a knowledge of Jesus Christ, but I've never trusted in Him, this morning would you put your trust in Christ Jesus? Come and let Brad know, say, you know, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I don't just want to be a fan of Jesus. I don't just want to know the Easter story. I want to know the Easter story. Today, let that be your decision. If you need to declare that, let's declare that through baptism in the weeks ahead. Maybe you need to join this church, make that your decision. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll stand as we sing together. If you need to put your faith in Christ, you come. Let myself or Brad know you want to put your faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together and then we'll be on our feet. Father, You have just heard a message from God's Word and now it's your chance to respond. What is God calling you to do in response to today's message? Let us know by going to hbcmolino.com slash life. we love to connect with you. Thanks for joining us today on the Highland Network. Enjoy your day.